Excuse me if I splutter, but hay fever, even the sound of cutting grass is making me... So I <laughs> get a bit of hay fever. All right, little admission as we start. Last week I gave you a lot of material, and, and so the main point or points of what I was saying may have been not as clear as they should have been because you were hearing so much stuff. So let me go back a little then. This, is the, this headline summarises the two Thessalonian letters, living in the light of the Lord's return or living in readiness for the return of Jesus. So I kind of like the word readiness. There are two things there. The Lord is returning and our being ready for that. Okay? Two very simple points. So I'm going to talk about the Lord's return first of all and let me give you an account of why I teach the things that I do, which may not be the way you've heard these things before. So let's be clear. The same Jesus who came from the Father who was born of the Virgin, who lived, died on the cross and rose to life again, but then returned to the Father, is coming again. I will come again and receive you to myself, said Jesus. That's a central point of Christian faith. If you don't believe that, you're not really a Bible-believing Christian. It features in every orthodox confession, creed or doctrinal statement of the Christian churches. The study of these last things has a posh, Greek name, eschatology. That's not eschatology, how do we get out of here? That's eschatology, how do things end? I've told you that when I was a new believer, I was taught that his return would happen in this way. So let me just describe that to you again. First of all, there was the secret rapture. At any moment, Jesus would secretly come and take invisibly unseen, take away all living Christians, as well as invisibly raising all the dead Christians too. And the world would have to carry on with all these people having disappeared, without the church and without the presence of the Holy Spirit. You heard that one, yeah? Okay. There would then follow a seven-year period of great tribulation, which was centered on Israel. And at the end of that time, Jesus would visibly return, you could see him this time, and begin a thousand-year reign from Jerusalem. At the end of that thousand years, there would be a final rebellion of the forces of wickedness and they would be defeated, where? Armageddon. And Jesus would then raise all the remaining dead to be judged on the day of judgment and after that, the eternal kingdom of God would begin. But from the time that I became a new believer, I started to do something that I thought was quite ordinary but later realised was not actually so common. I started to read the Bible through. And... Despite the pressure of the kind of versions kind of that were around, and a lot of people to this day still think the King James Version is inspired. No, the Greek and the Hebrew were inspired. That's just an English version. I read the Bible through in what was then a very modern version, the Revised Standard Version. And as I read it, I sought to believe it at plain sense. Very soon I had a problem. Because not only on the last things, but on other subjects too, uh, what I was reading wasn't quite what I'd been hearing. And sometimes wasn't what my pastor was saying. It was as if all the Bible texts about the Lord's return, the end of the world, and the resurrection of the dead and so on, were like kind of laid out before me like jigsaw pieces. But I was being given a plan for the jigsaw and told to fit them in. This is the plan, you've got to fit those in this way. But as I read the Bible, I found I couldn't do that without cutting this piece and bending that one. 
to make them fit. Now, some people say that's rightly dividing the word of truth. You cut a verse in half and say, that's, that's, but that's over there. Dividing up little texts of scripture, taking things out of context so they fit the plan. So I'll tell you what I did. I threw away the pattern. I threw away the box, the, the picture, the design that I'd been given. And I just let the pieces find their own place, connecting together. I just kept on reading the Bible. And over quite a long time, I came to this general view, which is actually the way that the Reformers and the Puritans saw Scripture too, but I didn't know that at the time. There will come a day. Jesus called it the last day, and I have no reason whatsoever to disagree with him. He also called it the end of the age. The Old Testament prophets point to it as the day of the Lord. There were other days of the Lord when judgment came, but this is the final, last, great day of the Lord. We would commonly speak of it outside of Scripture as the end of the world or the end of time. It's that day that I believe in. On that day, Jesus will visibly, publicly, noisily and emphatically return to the earth. Every eye will see him. On that day, he will raise all the dead saints and transform the living saints who will all then meet their king with joy in the air as he comes to earth. And this gathering of his people to him is pictured in scripture, the bridegroom claiming his bride to himself. It's that intimate. On that same day, he will raise from the dead all who have died without faith in him, who together with the living unbelievers, he will then judge. On that day, his saints are rewarded and receive their inheritance and they're welcomed into God's presence and kingdom. But on that day, the unbelieving are condemned and sentenced and excluded, exiled from God's presence forever. On that day, this creation will be cleansed by the fire of God and renewed. The creator is going to restore his creation. Hallelujah. Romans says that creation groans for the revealing of the sons of God. Why? Because when the sons of God, to be who they really are in the resurrection, be transformed and glorified, then creation gets remade as well. That's why I'm preaching this morning. From that day, under a new heavens and a new earth, a new earth will exist, and that will be the eternal home of God and all his children. And then there will be a new, eternal, never-ending day of the glorious kingdom. And so, yes, Revelation 20 isn't easy, though I take it with many commentators and many of the early church fathers to refer to, not to future age, but to this gospel age between the first coming of Jesus and his return. And some of what Paul writes takes some thinking about. It's not easy. Paul, uh, Peter references that. Some of the scriptures on, that Paul wrote weren't easy. But I need to take the things that are plain and keep them plain. And I can't cut them up or bend them to fit a plan. Do you know what mostly led me to these conclusions? It wasn't reading the old guys, even though I found out later that I was only agreeing with them. It was the words of Jesus himself. It was his parables, his prophetic statements, his plain teaching, particularly in John's Gospel, where as I showed you a week or two ago, again and again, he refers to on the last day, 
He's promised you and I he'll raise us up on the last day and not before then. I cannot and will not trim or twist his words concerning the resurrection of the dead on the last day. Now the point of understanding these things is so that we are ready. Ready for his return. So let's begin again. Let's engage again with Thessalonians. We'll pick it up in 1 Thessalonians 2. We're going to go through chapter 3 as well. And we'll add a little bit from 2 Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians 2.17 But as for us, brothers, after we were forced to leave you for a short time in person, not in heart, we greatly desired and made every effort to return and see you face to face. So we wanted to come to you, even I, Paul, time and again, but Satan hindered us. Paul had been forced to leave Thessalonica after a very short visit. You can read it in Acts 17. There's your little bit of afternoon reading. And as they were going to be thrown out of Thessalonica, a believer called Jason and others had to put up a bond, which was like a, a, a financial pledge that Paul would not return there. You understand what bail is, yes? You, someone pays bail, which promises you will return to court to answer the charge. So you're allowed to go home because the bail is the fine if you don't. Well, a bond is you go away and you, you pay the fine if you do come back. So Jason and others had to pay a bond, a financial penalty, a promise that if Paul came back, they would forsake that money. Paul acknowledges elsewhere too that in some of his travel plans he was hindered, withstood by Satan. The Greek words are like Satan was digging up the road so he couldn't get through. That's the picture of it. He was disrupting the journey. And let me just mention again here, if shouting at the devil would have removed the obstacles, do you think Paul wouldn't have done it and we wouldn't be hearing about the obstacles? I'm afraid God, in his sovereignty and wisdom, allows Satan to resist us at times and in some situations because it should cause us to fight in prayer and develop firmer faith. We are here now to learn persistence, endurance, and to become overcomers. So if you have nothing to overcome, you'll never be an overcomer. So there is resistance from the enemy. And then Paul says this. I'll just make a comment there. For who is our hope or joy or crown of boasting in the presence of our Lord Jesus at his coming? I've given you a Greek word there, parousia. I'll explain it in a minute. Is it not you? For you are our glory and our joy. This word, parousia, Greek word, it means the arrival of the king. And it's a custom that went back 300 years before Jesus came to the, to the Greek empire and then it came into the Roman empire. A tradition that went through. The king or the emperor... Uh, came into his city or even visited another city or another town and so he came with all of his with you know with enough of his army to make an impression and whatever and the people all went hail to the king you know and whatever and guess what many of them gave him when he went to a new place they gave him another crown they gave the king a crown what does paul say are you not our crown of boasting when the Lord Jesus appears? In other words, you're the crown, not that I'm going to wear, but you're the crown I'm going to give to Jesus. We even sing hymns that talk about that crown, him with many crowns, that I'm upon the throne. All right? When you read in Revelation about the elders, the 12 elders, 
Guess what they do? They've been given crowns. What do they do when Jesus walks in? They cast their crowns before him. They crown him. Let every other name fade. And let the name of Jesus remain. Paul is saying, you're going to be my crown in that day so I can present you to Jesus. My crown of boasting. The Greeks called it Perusia. The, Roman, the Romans in Latin called it an Adventus. And what do we talk, say about Jesus coming, his first coming? It's his Advent. It's a Latin word. What is the second coming? His second Advent. It's the same thing. It's not just baby in a cradle, very nice. No, the king has come. That's what Advent means. That's what this Greek word Perusia means. The king has come. Now, if you're a loyal citizen of the king... You're glad to see him, aren't you? But if you're one of those wicked people who don't like the king and don't want to obey him and you're always trying to figure out how to not keep his laws, what does the arrival of the king mean for you? Fear. And trouble. Thank you. (laughs) Fear and trouble. The king is coming? When? When? When's he coming? How long have I got to either get away with this or straighten it up? Yeah. Now that is the two-pronged effect and impact of the coming of Jesus. It's the king arriving. Loyal subjects go, yay! Disobedient people go, what? Revelation even pictures kings, kings of the earth, hiding in rocks and holes of the earth. Because the king is coming. There's a few politicians I'd like to see doing that. But there you go. So this word is used mostly in the New Testament about the coming, second coming of Jesus. I got ahead of myself. Let me... So this coming is the day, the day of his coming. And the day of his coming has an impact for his willing servants and an impact on his unwilling servants the ones who said he's in Rome, he's hundreds of miles away he's never going to bother us and then suddenly they hear he's arriving tomorrow what? the day let me go back to where we start, ended last time in 2 Thessalonians 1 Paul assures, assures the Thessalonian believers that those who afflict them will be repaid with affliction by God and then he sets a time frame for that. Okay? This is not just in their lifetime. This is talking about the future. This, you afflicted Christians, you persecuted Christians being rewarded and commended and your persecutors being judged will happen when? This will take place at the revelation of the Lord Jesus from heaven with his powerful angels taking vengeance with flaming fire on those who don't know God and those who don't obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. That's, the, that's the, uh, the, the unwilling servants, isn't it? That's the rebels, yes? yes. The king's coming. Yes. The faithful people are going, yay! The rebels are going, what? <laughs> These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction from the Lord's presence and from his glorious strength in that day when the comes to be glorified by his saints. It's one appearing. 
it's one return. On the same day of his appearing, his revelation, the wicked are going, what? And the saints are going, yes! When he comes to be glorified by saints and be admired by all those who believe, because our testimony among you is believed. It's routinely described that way throughout the New Testament. The same day is the day of reward and revenge. It's the day of glory and of condemnation. It's the day of the division of humanity into two groups that will never, ever be, be, be close to each other again. And in fact, just again to mention to you the parable of the weeds amongst the, amongst the grain, Jesus says in explaining that parable, when the mighty angels come, he comes with his mighty angels, they remove the wicked out and leave the righteous. It's completely opposite of the secret rapture theory. Completely opposite. When we get to 1 Thessalonians 4 and 5, we see how Paul emphasizes that even those Christians who have died before the Lord's return don't miss out. They get to be first in the jump on Resurrection Day, ready to meet the Lord. Uh, they will rise with newly resurrected bodies, closely followed by the living but transformed saints, will meet Jesus as he comes from heaven to judge the world and to bring in the eternal kingdom of God. So the, here's the point. Living in readiness. In 1 Thessalonians, Paul switches between doctrinal teaching about the Lord's return and immediate practical and pastoral issues because they are completely connected. Just give me the theory. I don't want to know what, how to live. No, no, no. A lot of people go, just tell me how to live. I don't want the theory. Actually, they go together. Sound doctrine is truth that changes the way you live. It's not just truth that changes the way you think, but the, the way you change the way you think changes the way you live. What we believe shapes the way we live. Living comes out of believing. Months and months and months ago, I did a little animation thing up there that showed how if you take some letters out of believing, you're left with living, and I can't, couldn't find where I put it. But anyway... You, you, you cross out B and E and a few other things, you know, and believing becomes living. My friends, you're a Christian. The way you live should be completely rooted in and guided by what you believe. No confusion, no mixture. You live a Christian life because you are a Christian. Here then are Paul's next comments and concerns for the Thessalonians. I haven't put all these on screens. can read it through to you. Therefore, this is 1 Thessalonians 3 now if you've got a version in front of you. Therefore, when we could no longer stand it, Paul's, Paul's like, he's like stuck. He's in Athens and then Corinth and then back in Corinth again. And, and then he's saying, I want to go to Thessalonica. I want to see them again. I want to see them again. So he's like, he's like a cat in a hot tin roof, as we say. Frustrated. He's hindered. He says, when we could no longer stand it, we thought it was better to be left alone in Athens than we sent Timothy. I'll, I'll send him then. <laughs> Our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ to strengthen and encourage you concerning your faith. Count how many times we read the word faith here. So that no one will be shaken by these persecutions. For you yourselves know that we are appointed to this. To what? To persecution. In fact, when we were with you, we told you Previously, that we were going to suffer persecution. And as you know, it happened. 
For this reason, when I could no longer stand it, I sent him to find out about your faith, fearing that the tempter had tempted you and that our labor might be for nothing. But now Timothy has come to us from you. So Timothy had gone and come back again and brought us good news about your faith and love and reported that you always have good memories of us, waiting, wanting to see us, but as we also want to see you. Therefore, brothers... In all our distress and persecution, we're encouraged about you through your faith. For now we live if you stand firm in the Lord. How can we thank God for you in return for all the joy we experience because our God, because before our God because of you? As we pray very earnestly night and day to see you face to face and to complete what is lacking in your faith. Thank you. The word faith there appears five times. In this context, it is not just believing things that are true. It's faith that changes the way you live to such an extent you're willing to endure hardship, fierce persecution and opposition and stand firm and say, I will not give up following Jesus. That's faith. Faith tried through fire of affliction. Faith that stands bold against opposition. It seems to me that in a one generation, we lack enough faith to stay loyal and obedient to the Lord in general ways when they were obedient even to the point of death. The apostles went everywhere preaching the gospel, but wherever they went with the gospel of the kingdom of God, but wherever they went, we read in Acts, they also told people very plainly that in following the Lord Jesus, they, were, they needed to be prepared for persecution and opposition. Here is what they said to them. It says, Paul writing, it was Luke writing, Acts 14. They went everywhere, strengthening the disciples by encouraging them to continue in the faith and by telling them, it is necessary to pass through many troubles. The King James Version there is tribulation. You know, come back to that in a minute. On our way into the kingdom of God. The entrance to the kingdom of God between now and the last day, between now and your, your even, you know, your death and being taken to the presence of the Lord, isn't without trouble. And if any preacher tells you you can have a trouble-free life, they are lying. I just stuck my name on it. Put it on the internet. Anyone tells you you can have a trouble-free life, God doesn't, God doesn't want any trouble for his children, you shouldn't be enduring trouble. Liar! Hands on fire. Or should be. Here in 1 Thessalonians, Paul writes to encourage their faith. Some people want to argue the children of God should never experience trouble, will never pass through any kind of tribulation. That is simply false teaching. The church has gone through trouble, tribulation, persecution, opposition in every age, two, 20 centuries until now, and will do so until the last days. The thing is, it's fierce and physical in some places. It's subtle, but just as persistent in others. In the Asia and Africa, there are places where you could literally lose your life today for being a Christian. But in the West, you will probably suffer economically. You won't be given 
the job. You won't be trusted with that because you hold firm to God's principles. And by the way, did you notice this thing about abortion in America? Do you see that all the media companies, even Disney, saying, we won't work with you guys if you, if you, if you put in an anti-abortion law in your state. The media companies and the internet and, com and, and computer companies of America are signing up to try to, com to economically punish people who want to stop babies being aborted. They strike us economically, socially. And if, if you weren't convinced that those things are of this world, it's time to wake up. They are very much of this world. And there are companies, to, even now, which I will not trust my information to. I've just opted out of them. In case you think I'm being over the top, here's again, what did Jesus say? I've told you these things so that in me you may have peace. You will have trouble, suffering, tribulation, the same word, there. it's the same Greek word that gets translated tribulation. <coughs> We say, oh, we don't Christians don't go through tribulation. Jesus says, you will suffer tribulation in this world. Be courageous. I have conquered the world. If you sign up to follow Jesus, he says you've got to be willing to carry a cross. You'll be, <laughs> you're not going to be rewarded by the world for naming the name of Jesus. They're not going to pat you on the back. Oh, well done, good chap. Good for you. There's the way to go. Yes, very good, very good. You what? Oh, really? We say to people who become new Christians, particularly when they're being going to be baptized, you do realize that to name the name of Jesus is to, is to kind of put a target on your chest, don't you? Here I am, I'm Christian now. And the world... And the devil are going to go, right. They can have a go. Paul says here, the tempter, he was concerned the tempter would tempt them and undermine their faith or misdirect their faith. The, the false brethren we looked at last week, that's the Judaizers and the false prophets and apostles and the false teachers uh, coming in amongst them. They were part of that strategy of the enemy to undermine their faith to take them away from the things that really matter the centrality of jesus simple understanding about his second coming is one of the things they were contesting and he's saying your faith is being undermined by people who are really the agents of the devil but the devil's dealings with us in our nation at this time still are more subtle than threats of violence imprisonment and death though that's happening to our brothers and sisters around the world we're tempted by the things of this world. It's material goods. It's bling. <laughs> it's vanity. It's self-worship. And by the way, it dawned on me this week that social media has this underlying trajectory. It's where what, people, what, what most people use social media for is this. Self-projection, self-advertisement, Leading to self-worship. Look at me, look at me, look at me. Look at me. I'm here. Selfie. What is that? 
It's making an idol of yourself. People seeking to make a living by being online makeup artists and so on. What is that? What is that? Self-projection leading to self-worship. That's my analysis, folks. You can take it or leave it. But I'm, I'm having as little as I can to do with it. So if you think he doesn't, doesn't like much on Facebook, I don't like anything on Facebook. I just don't do that stuff. I don't want to do it. Yeah. Do you understand? Mm. We're tempted by false teaching as well. That leads us away from, that instead of leading us away from being worldly to, uh, and to devotion, obedience to Christ, encourages us to just be like the world. It's okay, you can be like them. So, no, it's all right to love money. No, no it's all right to, to build up your resources and gather as much wealth as you can. It's, that's fine. No, 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 no. You know, and pe- they, they do it, don't they? Oh, if Jesus was around today, he would be and he would have. Really? Pursuing selfish ambitions. It's a while now since we finished working through Ephesians. It's a key section of that letter is the last bit where it talks about the Christian's warfare. Do you remember us doing the Christian's warfare? Yeah. Okay, it's a while ago. They're all, the sermons are all up on the internet still. And if you want a set of notes, on, I can print them for you. Let me say again, we are in the fight of faith and it's the fight of our lives. We are in a 24-7 fight to maintain focus on the truth of Jesus and obedience to him. There are incredibly powerful forces at work, media, TV, popular culture, social media, which are seeking to pull us away from this devotion. We're in a fight. And if you don't know in a fight, you've lost something already. You know, you're like a boxer, like poor old Joshua last night. The English boxer went in the ring, boom, came out almost flat. I read it this morning. I, I, have to, I shouldn't really, but I have a kind of interest in boxing. I, don't I always look at the result. Let me say this to you. If you don't know you're in a fight, you're already, you're already you know, reeling around the ring, dizzy from the blows, and you don't know you are. We're in a fight to be clear-minded, full-hearted, firm-footed, in faith and obedience to the Lord Jesus our King. We're in a war contending for faith, faith in Jesus both as truth and as our way of life. We fight for the right to live as we believe, to stand on the truth as we understand it and to not give way to the, the, the political pressure of political correctness, which is exactly what this debate in America about abortion is about. Oh, yeah, these right-wingers, these moral majority, these people who think they're better than us. We fight for the right to stand firm in Jesus. I've done it again. Why do I do this? So listen, Paul comes to a prayer as we go into 1 Thessalonians 3. Paul's prayer. There's a kind of prayer he kind of picks up again and again through the letter. 
And there's a couple of things he prays for which are where my focus is going to be in winding this up this morning. Paul's prayer. Now, may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you. He's still hoping to get there to Thessalonica. And may the Lord cause you to increase and overflow with love for one another and for everyone, just as we also do for you. May he make your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming perusia, the arrival of the King, of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. Amen. Amen. There's another similar prayer as we track through parallel in 1 Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians 1. In view of this, we always pray for you that our God will consider you worthy of his calling and will, by his power, fulfill every desire for goodness and the work of faith. Your desire will be met by God's power to make it happen. So that the name of our Lord Jesus will be glorified by you and you by him, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Last week we finished in 1 Thessalonians 2, 10 to 12, and talked about Paul saying that he had behaved himself and he and his friends had behaved themselves uh, righteously, devoutly, righteously and blamelessly, walking worthy of the calling to the kingdom of God, the king, his kingdom and glory. Devoutly, as God would, righteously, man would, blamelessly, our testimony, our evidence, our example in the world. Today, two things. First one is this, the increase and overflow of love. May the Lord cause you to increase and overflow with love for one another and for everyone. How many of you know that we are commanded as Christians to love one another? Jesus said a new commandment. It wasn't a suggestion. Let me give you just a little intimation. Let me just, let me just throw in a little thing here, you know, you might want to think about. A new commandment. What? Like the ten? Yes, like the ten. A new commandment I give to you. That you love one another as I have loved you. By this will all men know that you are my disciples if you have loved one for another. But then when we've, when we've started to work out what it is to love one another and serve one another and help one another and support one another and, 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 and empty our pockets to help one another at times and all of that kind of stuff, guess what? We're going to do the same for the world because we've learned how to do something. So the love for one another overflows outside of one another to other people. Not everybody indiscriminately, but the people we have connection to, other family members, workmates, neighbours. And they think, oh, something about these people. You know? May the Lord cause you to increase in love and overflow with love. Overflow means that something happens. Love is more than a feeling, more than an emotion. If love doesn't have an action, it's just gut, it's just feelings, it's just words. It's, it's like, you know, oh, come on. You know, sweet talk. You know, how many times have we heard the kind of the romantic sweet talk thing? Oh, I really love you, dear. I really love. There's a time for some action, some service, some help, some support, some getting in there and rolling your sleeves up and doing the washing up rather than like, well done, dear, well done. You know. Sweet talking's nice in a way, but it doesn't get the bread on the table and it doesn't get the dishes washed, does it? Yeah? Bit of romantic, romantic kind of conversation. Yeah, it's all right, it has its place, but sooner or later there has to be some realism. So faith 
has action and love has action. And yet love is a heart issue. We've got to get our hearts in gear. Sometimes we've got to get that straight and then we begin to act it out. Sometimes we've got to say, I'm, I'm struggling here, so I'll just do it anyway and see if this will jump start into this, you know. But it's, you don't say, well, I'm not going to do it unless I feel like it. That's, oh, that's a good recipe for going nowhere and doing nothing. How much of your daily life do you feel like doing before you do it? You ask yourself, do I feel like cleaning my teeth this morning? Do I feel like having a shower tonight? Do I feel like uh, filling the car up with petrol? You, know, do, you don't consult your feelings about all sorts of things. And yet some, we give ourselves an excuse about doing some things because we consult our feelings first. And if the feelings aren't there, oh, fine, I don't have to do it then because I don't feel like it. <laughs> Duh! Real life doesn't happen because you feel like it. Some of the biggest things in life need to be decisions you make and then there's an action to your will to, make, to press the button and make it happen. Love is action, it's decision, it's not just feelings. Yet love is a heart issue. And as you do the right thing, as you care for people, your heart does change. Because the Holy Spirit pours the love of God into your heart. That doesn't mean you know God loves you. He gives you love for other people. Because you're choosing to get yourself in the place where you need him to supply it, he'll supply it. Overflow. Increase and overflow of love. One of the churches that Jesus wrote to, it's a very good church. He commends them, he commends them, commends them, and says, I've got one thing against you. They go, oh, really? He says, you've left your first love. What? There's heart issue. They were good and right and straight. They dealt with false teachers and they'd been good. They dealt with false apostles. They were a good, solid church. But something had gone out of the heart of the matter. They'd left their first love. So Jesus tells them, as he told them, to repent. What? Because my heart's not right. Yes. Turn around, come back. And interestingly, he says, get back the old feelings. He says, do the things you used to do. He doesn't talk about find, rediscover the feelings. He says, do the things you used to do. So the way to re-engage with love is to do the things you do. Increase of love. And then he says this, this is the last one, holy, blameless hearts. May he make your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with his saints. This could be taken as the very core statement of these two. In fact, commentators say that. Everything leads up to this and everything after this is an explanation. When you get to 1 Thessalonians 4 and 5, the resurrection of the dead and how that happens, this is all Paul explaining this phrase, the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. But he's, he's practical and pastoral. Before he says the coming, he says, may your hearts be blameless in holiness before him when he comes. May you be fully ready for that day and that encounter. The word saints here doesn't mean some special class of Christian. You know, the Catholics and others have people they, they put in their hall of fame. Yeah? Here's all the Christians, but those are saints. 
Yeah, they're, they're, they're the super guys and ladies, you know. And, and you know, they're, they're elevated to sainthood. The New Testament knows nothing of that nonsense. The New Testament calls every Christian believer a saint. You are saints. Number one, because God calls you it the same way as he calls you a child. That's his chosen attitude towards you. That's his determined focus upon you. You are his child, you are a saint. Number two, he calls you to become it. He calls you to live a life which sums up this thing that, he, that he's put upon you, that he calls you. Same with being a child, an heir of God. Grow up, be a grown-up child, an heir of God. Not a baby in God, a child, an heir of God. Fully responsible grown-up heir. That's H-E-I-R, you understand? And then thirdly, he's called you it, he's calling you to it, he's working it in us. He is working out in us what being a saint is. And it comes back to this word holiness. Really, in, in, the, in the Greek, they're the same thing. You're hagios, you're a holy one, so you may be hagiasme, you may be holy. He calls you holy ones and he's making you holy. But we have a part to play in that. Blameless in holiness. Blameless is innocent, innocent of any charge. Not carrying anything worthy of judgment. Clearing stuff away, cleaning it out, keeping clean. Blameless. And that means before others and before God. Reading this morning, daily readings, Psalm 119. This is yesterday's reading, didn't do yesterday, so I did it this morning. Psalm 119, first two verses. How happy are those whose way is blameless? Now, they're not completely without fault, but they're not carrying charges, they're not carrying guilt, they're not carrying condemnation. Who live according to the Lord's instructions. Happy are those who keep his decrees and seek him with all their heart. They do nothing wrong. They follow his ways. Blameless. Make it your pursuit, your goal, to be blameless. Then holiness. Holiness is living one devoted, focused life. Holiness is not defined by a list of don'ts. You know, I've talked about that before. People used to, when I was a kid, were legalistic and they had a list of all things you don't do. If you don't do those things, you're a good Christian. It's like, it seems like a... You know, well, the thing to do is then, you know, go in a room, lock yourself in so you can't do any of those things, and, hey, I'm holy. Yeah. People used to do that. That's why they went into monasteries and stuff. They could just remove themselves completely on their own, then they could be holy. The fact is, there's stuff in there that needs to deal with, not just out there. You can take the world away, but the flesh is still there. Human nature. You can have your dark thoughts and your, you know, and all the rest of it in a... In a cell in a room on your own you've got to deal with you holiness is about pursuing God to make you clean and it's defined by positive Godward aspirations and actions and hearts make your hearts blameless it's from the inside out it's a heart issue what's going on the inside is what comes out Jesus said after a heart an evil person's heart they bring forth evil things out of a good person's heart they bring forth good things why? Because they're a child of God. They've been born of his spirit. Paul's prayer over in 2 Thessalonians has a similar thought. We read it a moment or two ago. May he fulfill every desire for goodness in the work of faith. 
every desire. Let me go to familiar scripture, Philippians 2. So then, my dear friends, just as you've always obeyed, not only in my presence, but even now more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Work out what it is to be a Christian, how to live this saint life. All right? But in case you think, oh, the pressure's on me, I've got to live through all my good. The next verse says, for it is God who is working in you, enabling you both to desire and to work out his good purpose. Every good desire in you comes from God. You didn't make it happen, he did. Every wish to do the right thing, every aspiration to do better, to be a more noble Christian, a more, uh, to have more integrity, to do more of the right thing. Those desires are put there by God and he by his power can enable them into action. He's working in you, not just to desire, but to work it out. To work out his good purpose. And working it out sometimes means working it out. You've got to think it through. You've got to pray it through. So you figure out how this works. You go, maybe you've got to ask some Christians who are older in the Lord than you and more seasoned warriors in Christ to say, how does this work? Joe, David, Fred, whatever. And you get some help. You get some instruction. You get some encouragement. So you work it out. This good desire, this passion, this aspiration, you get to do it in real life. So then, pursuit, desire. Okay, let's not do the bicycles thing, but what do you want? What is it that you want? Let me just ask you here to be a moment. Be careful. You can want and even then have what doesn't actually prosper your long-term good at all. You think it's the real deal, but it's ashes. Wealth is deceptive, unreliable, and in the end of no value at all. In the, in the recreation of the world, even the precious metals will melt. The gold and silver will be worth nothing in that day. Fame and success are like some fruits that look attractive but have got a bitterness inside. What is it people are on social media for? Approval, appraisal. Lots of people find out that the, the good life or the higher life isn't so good and high after all. Very often the scriptures are dealing with things that we desire that are not good for our good. But here are some things the scripture tells us we should desire, we should pursue. And I've given them just as a list of names, headlines, it's just to shorten the notes a bit. Let me just run through with you. Words. We are told in scripture, commanded, Instructed to pursue these things. Desire them. Go after them. Number one, faith, love, righteousness, godliness, endurance, which means the overcoming thing. And if you haven't got anything to, to endure, you're not, you're not enduring it. Gentleness, peace. There's lots on that one. Holiness, pursue holiness. Desire God's word. Desire goodness and the work of faith. Desire to build one another up. Desire what is good for one another and for all people. Uh, pursue hospitality, opening your home to welcoming people. Pursue and desire the gifts of the Spirit, especially the gift of prophecy. And then pursue and desire and wait earnestly for 
the coming of the day of God. We should desire the day of the Lord. Why? Because whether people are going, yay, not whoa. All of those things, desiring, pursuing those things, prepare us for the coming of our Lord Jesus so that we see him. When we see him, we'll be glad and he can receive us and commend us. Well done, good, faithful servant. John even goes so far in his first letters to say that if we live in the love of God, we can have confidence in that day. Did you get that? Not afraid of his coming, confident in his coming. As we live in the love of God, living in the love of God includes keeping his commands, doing what he says. What are you and I chasing after all? After all? When you get it, will it be worth the effort? Will it even last out this life? There are things to pursue, especially knowing the Lord Jesus himself that will be for our present good and for our eternal reward. <coughs> so let me remind you again some of the words of Jesus. Don't collect for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But collect for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves don't break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will also be. What you invest in this world and in the world that now exists will one day all be lost. But what you invest in heaven now will be yours when the Lord returns. So be sure, please, that from your heart you're desiring and pursuing what has real, lasting value. Living in readiness for the Lord's return. Set your heart to desire to pursue what really counts. And if they don't find much desire there, ask for it. Like wisdom, what we lack, we should ask for. If you lack wisdom, ask for wisdom. If you lack passion, desire, longing, ask for it. Aspire to be from the heart, holy and blameless, ready for his coming. These things are empty words. Paul was praying this into the Thessalonians. It's my duty and responsibility to pray it for you too. And if Jesus doesn't come back for another hundred years or thousand years, we nevertheless should be living this life every single day, ready, ready, even confident, confident. Let's pray, shall we? <clears throat> As we're beginning to pray, it may be that you haven't started yet to be a Christian. Um, that kind of dawned on you as we were talking today. Well, if that's what being a Christian is, then I'm not a Christian yet. Well, that's okay. Why don't you make your appeal to him? Yeah. You know, you felt like that was a bit of a setback. It's an opportunity. Why don't you make your prayer to him now? Lord Jesus, please take me. Make me a Christian. Let me live in your kingdom. Show me how to live by your law, your love, and your word. How to be pleasing to God rather than rebel against God. Lord Jesus, come and change my life now, please, from today. Simple prayer. Put your own words in it.
May the Lord Jesus hear your prayer. Amen. For all of us now. Some of you were looking at me when I was talking about how pressured we are by the world, trying to pull us off track. You, you caught that. You saw that. Why don't we appeal to him for, health, for help, his help today? So we begin to see what's happening around us. We see that the, the attractions are no more than empty. You know, the, the funfair? You know, with the Ferris wheels and so on, aren't they really tacky places? You know, when they say to you, okay, we're going to take you to the fun fair, and you go there, and there's like weird people there, and a sense of back violence in the background, and they're not nice places at all. The world calls us to its fun fair, but it's not nice. It's not good. And we can, we can kind of be entertained for a time, but if we're, if we're not careful, we sucked into their values. We begin to accept their worldview. We need to be cleansed by the truth of God. We need to have an appetite in our hearts that says, I can't be doing this, I can't be putting up with this. I need to go back and get a dose of the truth and a cleansing of my heart and my mind. Don't forget to fight. It's a fight of faith. It's a lifestyle we're called to. We, we are never out of the fight. But don't forget, you're in a fight. Ask the Lord to help you, to strengthen you, encourage you. And some of you, too, may be experiencing some degree of opposition in the workplace. You know, you're singled out, you're treated differently because you're a believer. Well, do you know what? You're honoured. You're suffering for his name's sake. I know it's difficult saying. It's a difficult saying, and the apostles all say it. Rejoice in that day. And Jesus said it too. Rejoice. You're counted worthy to bear the name Christian, and they resent the fact that you're a Christian. It's okay. You're in a good team. You're in good company. Jesus applauds you if you stand firm. Father, I pray now for my friends here. Every one of us, Lord, will work out some more of what this life looks like, which is different from the life other people are living around us. And we're not trying to down them, we're not trying to criticise them, but we cannot live the way they live because at the core of our beings we are rooted in a different kingdom and we're serving a different king and we're going to a different destination. Lord Jesus, strengthen our faith. One, two, three, four, five. Faith, 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 faith. Strengthen, encourage us, establish us in faith. That is the conviction of things we believe to be true that shapes the way we then live. Oh, Father, strengthen our faith. If the disciples could ask for it, how much more should we be asking for it? Lord Jesus, strengthen our faith. So we believe and live the right things. In Jesus' name, for his honour we pray. Amen. Amen.